You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. How can long-term care physicians recognize the early signs and symptoms of depression and determine when pharmacologic or other forms of therapy are most appropriate? Joining us to discuss strategies for managing depression and related disorders in long-term care is Dr. Jay Luxenberg, Director of Medical Services at the Jewish Home in San Francisco and Clinical Professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. Uh, we're glad to have you today, and we're going to talk about depression in long-term care. How common is this problem? You know, most studies hover around the 50% range. It's partly a problem of definition given the high prevalence of dementia in long-term care. And so diagnosing depression in the setting of dementia is a little problematic, and therefore the percentages vary. So what's the best way for us to uh, figure it out in a variety of different long-term care settings? Let's take the nursing home and assisted living as two possibilities. Well, one thing that's been clearly demonstrated is that caregivers are not great at making this diagnosis. First of all, they are quite likely not to recognize true depression. And secondly, they're likely to attribute a lot of symptomatology that does not represent depression to be depression. So there's a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. And so it's really important for the physician to be comfortable making a diagnosis of depression. And we have a variety of tools for that. I already alluded to the problem of doing that, particularly late in dementia, but certainly for cognitively intact patients, there are self-administered tests like the quids, there's the geriatric depression scale that's really been well verified not only in nursing home settings but in assisted living. And in the setting of dementia, we have the Cornell. So these are wonderful screening tools. And of course, the gold standard becomes a DSM-4 diagnosis. Oh, so we do need a psychiatrist uh, with DSM-4 to be the gold standard. Is that what you're saying here? Well, you know, truthfully, I don't think you need a psychiatrist uh, to make that diagnosis. The way I feel as a primary care doctor is that I can recognize and treat the bulk of depression. And when I get into trouble, when it's very severe or whether it's not responding to two courses of treatment, then I'm happy to get help from one of my psychiatric colleagues. I have to admit, I'm working in a spoiled environment in that we also have an acute psychiatric hospital as part of our nursing home. And so we have psychiatrists every day, seven days a week. And so I always have them available if I need help. <laughs> yeah, you have a very nice setup there. But let's stay with quantitative evaluation right now. And I hope you're comfortable talking about the MDS 3.0 and the PHQ-9. I think our audience would like to hear a little bit about that particular test. I think that, again, as a primary care doctor, uncomfortable treating things that I can't quantitate. So I wouldn't treat a diabetic and never measure blood sugar or hemoglobin 1AC. I set a goal and then I adjust my treatment to achieve that goal. 
I really think that that has become the standard of treatment for depression. And uh, in large part, I think that the NIMH-sponsored STAR-D studies that were done, and now there's probably more than 100 publications out of them, really convinced us that that quantitative strategy with titration of therapy to achieve remission is the way to go. Now, it happens that the STAR-D, which of course was predominantly treating cognitively intact people, used a self-administered scale called the QUIDS. But in the nursing home setting, that is not as viable. And so with MDS-3, what uh, they've done, as they've done for many other parameters within MDS-3, is to take a previously validated test experts in the field feel comfortable with, in this case, the PHQ-9, and incorporated it into the evaluation. And therefore, we'll have that tool. It won't be the only tool we'll want to use, but it's at least something that's going to be universally available in long-term care in nursing home settings to quantitate response. I'll tell you why I think this is so important, Eric. There really is discouraging results of randomized clinical trials of antidepressant therapy in nursing home settings. It's not that great in the elderly in general, but particularly in nursing home settings, we see that these drugs are hard to differentiate from placebos. It doesn't mean that they don't work, but in the setting of a controlled trial, it's very hard to demonstrate it. But what we do know is that antidepressant therapy is associated with excess falls, Recently, there was a publication in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry that was really fascinating. It basically showed that if you responded to antidepressant therapy, your cognition improved. This is not in dementia. This is cognitively normal elderly people. But if you didn't improve, then the drugs actually had a deleterious effect on your cognition. And it sort of makes sense. Basically, It's wonderful when your depression is improved, your thinking is clearer and so forth, but if your depression is not improved, then all the potential side effects that the drugs have contribute to decreased cognition. So we say to ourselves, lots of people in nursing homes get put on these drugs and we don't have any firm proof we've made them better. But now that we can use these quantitative tests like the PHQ-9, we can see who has responded, and if they haven't responded, we really want to think twice about continuing drug therapy. We'd like to think of alternatives, and we also have to acknowledge the fact that there is excellent data in the elderly, albeit not necessarily in the nursing home setting, for non-pharmacologic management of depression. I think it's very underutilized in the nursing home setting. As we go forward with MDS-3, if we see people that are on antidepressant therapy, which of course will be evident in MDS-3, and their depression scales are not getting better, then we really are going to have an impetus to change our treatment, either switch drugs or try non-pharmacologic therapy. Now, I think that that isn't any different than we would be treating hypertension or treating diabetes, but it's just new for us in the setting of depression. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and joining me to discuss 
Strategies for Managing Depression and Related Disorders in Long-Term Care is Dr. Jay Luxenberg, Director of Medical Services at the Jewish Home in San Francisco and Clinical Professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. We've been talking about quantitative diagnostic testing for depression. Now let's talk about some of the drug and non-drug interventions you'd like to suggest. Well, Eric, there is really nice data to suggest that things like more activities and music and uh, family interactions and so forth have benefit for depressive symptoms. There's also a suggestion that light exposure and exposure outside the institution to sunshine and fresh air and so forth all have beneficial effects. I think we have to step back and say, why is there such a high placebo response in the clinical trials that makes it so hard to demonstrate that drug therapy is valuable? Many of us in the field think that, well, when you're enrolled in a clinical trial, nice research assistants come and talk to you generally once a week, and they administer questionnaires, and they pay a lot of attention to you, and of course, the nursing staff knows you're participating in a trial, and you get all this reward And in spite of the fact that you happen to have been randomized to not be on the drug, of course, you don't know that since it's a placebo-controlled trial, you get better. And so it makes many of us think that it would be valuable to pay more attention to the resident and provide more interpersonal contact as a non-pharmacologic measure. Now, I think that you know that I've had a research interest in the past for bright light therapy and more recently, flavor of bright light therapy where you give predominantly blue light. And that's been well studied in the nursing home, unfortunately, just not well studied for depression itself. There are two published trials in depression. It does look promising, but they're very small. Really, it's been studied for circadian rhythm abnormalities in dementia. And again, it has value. But I think to myself, There's excellent evidence that light therapy in winter depression is a valuable intervention. And certainly for my nursing home patients who have a seasonal component to their depressive illness, I think of light therapy. But even in non-seasonal depression, there is a consensus that there's value to bright light, particularly morning bright light early in your course of treatment. And I just think that it's so benign compared to the side effect profile of the drugs that we tend to use that it's another tool that I like to bring to my non-pharmacologic bag of tricks. Well, I've paid close attention to your light therapy, and I think you have to bring it from California to Minnesota to really test it out uh, <laughs> since we're, we're so deficient We'd also have that. to bring a little warmth therapy along yeah, with it. That's for sure. I want to go back to the social isolation, though, too. There's such a great movement at hand right now in the nursing homes with regard to social isolation, limiting that, preventing that. And it's good that you talk about that as well in part of your treatment strategy for depression. Well, Eric... Because I work full-time in the nursing home, I really do get to know our residents and talk to them. And you recognize that the very fact that you're moving into an institution implies a degree of loss. And uh, the individuals that I meet, it's very poignant. I, I was talking with one of our residents not long ago, and he's 100 years old. 
I guess it won't surprise you to say all his friends from high school are dead, all his friends from college are dead, all his friends from work are dead. He has outlived children, so his own children have died. And, of course, isolation is a big problem. Add to that the sensory impairment that these very elderly people tend to have, both hearing and visual, and you can imagine that when you put them in an institution, they'll have a tendency to isolate themselves. I'll give you an example of our non-pharmacologic management of this. As you and I are talking, I occasionally hear noises from the next room, and that happens to be our surhuman removal clinic. We have two nurse practitioners who basically just line up the patients and remove earwax. And there's good evidence that hearing impairment correlates with depression in long-term care and that by improving that problem, we can help people participate in activities and avail themselves of the community. And we feel that that's a very nice adjunct treatment, both to treat depression and to prevent depression. Jay, as we wind down now, any final comments or advice to our listeners with regards to handling depression in long-term care settings? Well, I just find it a wonderful exercise to basically adhere to the OBRA regulations that mandate that we review the necessity of drugs basically twice a year, but as often as possible, and consider taking them away. I have to say, I came from a school of thought that once an older person needed an antidepressant, it should be indefinite treatment. And now, uh, very much I've changed my mind. I recognize that the average length of stay of our long-term care residents here in California is 2.3 years. So, yes, there is a risk of recurrence, But these drugs also have side effects, including falls and cognitive impairment, as I mentioned. And so for many of our patients who don't have symptoms of depression anymore, we at least want to consider a gradual dose reduction or removal of the medication. And and I I think that that's a, a change in the way we initially treated these drugs. All right. I'd like to thank my guest from the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Jay Luxenberg. Jay, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.